Eventually the stress did get, get to me and I had a good old-fashioned nervous breakdown and was off work for a year. The stress of building up a company is enormous. I think only other entrepreneurs know that. I find that there's some jealousy about success, particularly from a woman. If only people knew what that success had cost. Hello and welcome to this episode of Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and this is the UK startup podcast where we bring you insights from leading entrepreneurs. The people we speak to have lived extraordinary lives and none more so than today's guest, Dame Stephanie Shirley. A pioneer who escaped Nazi persecution as a young child, she founded a software startup in 1962, which only employed women. Talk about being ahead of your time. And her company? went on to be worth billions. Since becoming a founder, she's gone by the name Steve for reasons we'll explain later. But first, let's find out what happened to Steve in late 1930s Europe. Well, I stem from a part Jewish family in Germany at a time when it was not a good time to be Jewish. And my father was a judge in Dortmund in the west of Germany. And we led a fairly bourgeois life of which I can remember very little. When Hitler came into power in 1933, and that's the year of my birth, he was fired summarily, and uh, the bad times began really with us apparently moving around seven countries in Europe, trying to find a safe place. And we eventually settled in Vienna, which was my mother's hometown. That was all right until the Anschluss, and then my father left, and my mother um, did a very brave thing, um, she organised for my sister and I uh, to come to England on the kinder transport, which brought out nearly 10,000 mainly Jewish children uh, from Nazi Europe. And so we arrived in England in 1939, July, uh, July the 6th, which is a date I always uh, remember. And when I was young, I really didn't want to think of myself as a refugee. I struggled very hard to be more English than the English. As I've matured and got indeed old, I've become more conscious of my Jewish background. I try to speak for Holocaust Memorial Day invitations. I uh, read a little bit about, um, for example, 7% of, of British businesses were founded by an immigrant. And that's an enormously high percentage. You sort of start thinking, how does that happen? And I think it is because of discrimination um, that this sets us off on our own, that we start to freelance and that grows easily into a small business. Older refugees bring in knowledge of businesses in their birth country of birth, which can transfer with reasonable chance of success into a new country. But mainly, I think it, it, it's given me that having survived that enormous change of family, of, of nationality, of, of home, of food, of everything, nothing really much throws me. And so I'm a lot perhaps calmer in building up a business and dealing with the inevitable disasters. 
And so what was, you know, how, like, how old were you? What was your early life like, you know, school? Was there university for you back in those days? Was it straight into the school of life? Just take us through sort of the early years of that separation and how that helped develop you. Well, I was very lucky in my foster parents in that they didn't have any children of their own, uh, were somewhat phased by two traumatised children that they took in who couldn't speak English, they couldn't speak German, so it was you know, fairly traumatic. But they did give me a very stable and very English uh, life. For example, they sent me to the local village school and I started to speak with a Birmingham accent. We were in the Midlands of England and they were a bit snobbish, bless them. And so said, we can't possibly have a child of ours of speaking like that. So they sent me to a private Roman Catholic school and that was a good start. So I don't think anyone can tell from my accent where I come from. Uh, they were linguists say that they can have some lingering way in which I put my sentences together isn't quite right. But anyway, that, that we just learned to live with that. My mother then got somewhere where she could, she had a home. Oh, it was such a complicated journey, really. My father was interned, so he was away. My mother could only work in domestic service or in, in the fields. And so she went into domestic service. And then after a few years, um, she got to a safe place of Oswestry on the border of Wales, North Wales. And um, she, uh, first of all, had a room. Then she had a room where she could have at least my sister. And I went there and boarded in some hostel and was moved around. So it was a phase sort of, but I, I, I love to learn. I love, I thoroughly enjoyed school. I had to fight to be taught mathematics. Uh, because girls' schools in those days, you know, you didn't have, teach science. I think the only science thought respectable for girls was, was botany, the study of plants. But it was uh, a fairly uneventful secondary education that I had um, there. They had the understanding that I did want to learn mathematics and they arranged for me to go to the boys' school. That was a you know salutary introduction to the, to the sort of sexism that I was to um, meet later on in my life. They were happy years. I didn't go to university because, oh, the finances were so difficult. I, I really felt desperately I need to start earning. I'm sick and tired of being, you know, living on charity money and all that sort of thing. So um, I came to London where all the uh, jobs were, of course and started as a sort of glorified mathematical clerk for the post office research station, which was you know, a very good place for me to be. And I did practice mathematics uh, at a very junior level uh, and studied at night school to get my honours degree in mathematics. Uh, so that's a, a sort of crazy way of getting into the work environment, which I found horrendously sexist. Uh, I'd been to a girls' school, I had attended the boys' school for the maths lessons, but I'd never really met. I mean, in the civil service, um, there were fixed salary scales for different grades. And there was one scale for men. And uh, I was horrified to find that there was another completely different and much lower scale for women. 
and I began to get quite um, irate about this and, and would, would say, I believe in equal pay and uh, if strong young men would offer to carry my equipment for me, I would sort of say, I believe in equal pay, I'm going to carry my own things, nobody has to help me. So I became quite assertive on the female. I th and I think also, Dan, I was sick and tired of being patronised as a Jew and then being patronised as a woman. That led really to my setting up a company to write software, tailor-made software, that was really designed as a sort of crusade for women. Um, it wasn't designed to make money. In fact, it was 25 years before it did make any money, but it was a crusade for women, a company of women, a company for women, managed by women, directed by women. And that gave the company a very different flavor to most uh, startups. Not only were we using, of the first 300 staff, 297 were women, so we really practiced what we preached at minute number one in the company's uh, annals was that our employment policy should be to provide jobs for women with children. As the importance of training came in, that quickly changed to provide careers for women with children. And then in 1975, uh, equal opportunities legislation came in and it made it illegal to have our pro-female policies and positive discrimination was not allowed. So we started to um, let the men in. Just, just to unpack this for a second, Steve. So 1975, the legislation obviously came in to support your cause realistically, right? This was, uh, I would imagine, a surprising own goal, but naturally, you know, you would have been one of the very, very, very few casualties because you were such an early adopter at recognising uh, the inequality in the first place, right? So how did that make you feel inside the company? Like, can you remember the conversations you were having when something came in that was really supposed to help lift women <laughs> up, but actually uh, hampered you? Well, uh, I think we tried not to take umbrage. Uh, we tried to laugh at the ridiculousness of it all. But all in all, it, we did realise that that was the way the world was going. And now, of course, all of business is much more inclusive. Uh, but it was a struggle in the early days. Women were second-class citizens. We didn't have the same education. We didn't have the same um, status. Uh, we found life extremely difficult. Um, and uh, each, every individual uh, found different ways in which to cope. So that was in 1975. How long had you already been running the company for? And can you just take us back a little bit? You know, what what was the company purpose at the time? Like, who were your customers and how did that develop over time? Well, there you are. You see, we, we part company because mine was a social business. I measured its success in terms of the number of people that we employed, the number of single parents, the number of, of prime earners, female number of people all, to, all together, because it was a social business and I did not go into money into business to make money. And everybody thought that was extremely silly. They thought it was equally laughable to try and sell software because at that time it was given away free with the hardware. And so it was a very disruptive organization. It had to be commercial because it had to uh, keep its cash flow positive and it, it inevitably wanted to grow if I wanted to employ people. 
but uh, the prime driver was not financial. That lasted, I mean, we started, I can remember in a couple of years, somebody asked me how many people were employed and it was about five, you know. And when I say employed, I mean, they were contracted occasionally on a part-time freelance basis. So it, it was a very, very slow start. But of course, it allowed us to learn how to run a business. I knew absolutely nothing. I mean, the girls' schools were even worse than the, the boys. You know, you had no idea about uh, even the mechanics of business. So I started off, uh, well, I, I'm available for work at my first customers with my ex-employer. Uh, the next customer was uh, introduced by an ex-colleague who'd moved on to somewhere else. And it was a very slow start. And suddenly I found myself, it was actually running a little business. And uh, I was beginning to uh, learn how to manage people, learn how to track the where the costs were going. Because when you start, you just pay things as you need to. We started with literally six pounds. I mean, it was ridiculously small. There'd be about a hundred pounds in today's money. I spent that on 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 letterhead, um, so that um, and I called the company freelance programmers, which was exactly what it was, Dan. You know, it was just a group of freelance programmers, which I suppose I organised. But after a bit, it did become a company and then we didn't like that word freelance anymore so we changed it to FPL freelance programmers limited and we felt very excited when we actually made it into a limited liability company we also later on became a public limited company but it was not on the stock exchange uh, so we, we we worked very hard to give that impression of stability our house style, for example, was grey to make us acceptable to a male customer base. And the customer base really was the data processing managers of commercial organisations. And we got some public sector, but not in the, in, in the early days. Later on, we learned that we shouldn't be selling to the data processing manager, we should be selling to the finance director or the commercial director or the chief executive. And the whole scale of everything changed because so we finished up with eight and a half thousand people. So, you know, it was a very slow burn, 25 years before we paid a dividend and a puny dividend at that. But, you know, Microsoft took 10 years before they paid a dividend. And nowadays, people are raising money enormously when they're still very much in losses. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. 
Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So 25 years before you were paying dividends, um, but then at the same time, your company mission, like your personal mission really was to employ people. Eight and a half thousand people is an incredible validation of that desire to help lift people up with their employment and give them opportunities. I guess I just want to unpack the moment where you said, you know, you did end up going public, but not on the stock exchange. Like, What does that mean? Like, How does one do that? Well, by that time, we, I had got a, ch- a chief executive officer. I was playing around on the international side and was definitely trying to move myself out from the business. The extraordinary thing really is that the more successful we were, the less I felt that I had to give to the business and the less I enjoyed it. And so I was trying, it took me 11 years to manage succession and get out of the company myself. And towards the end, I was pushed out because it was so slow. It was an extremely difficult thing for entrepreneurs to do. That's why I think many entrepreneurs don't grow into their corporate potential, simply because the original founder Um, who made it all happen, whose idea was blah, 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 tries to run it and doesn't have the right sort of skills or training to make a success of it. I I found that all very difficult. I think the happiest period in my business life was when I was still in touch with the technology, because I started off being, you know, right at the forefront, Um, but I was still in touch with it. I was doing a lot of selling, I was writing proposals, traveling a little bit, but protected from some of the boring aspects of running a business. I found very quickly that if I wasn't careful, I wasn't writing software, which is what I love, uh, but I was doing tax and insurance and legalities and and contracts and, and masses and masses of people management and paying other people to to do the nice bits of business. So I think each company has that sort of journey to sort out for itself. It depends on the individual, depends on their aims, and I suppose it depends on, on the company and whether it succeeds. We nearly went bust at one time. I'd got to the stage of selling capital items uh, to keep going, and uh, it was, I can remember, Dan, sitting in our lounge at night, sort of literally rocking. What can I do? 
what can I do? I mean, it was all on top of me. It was dreadful, dreadful times. But all in all, it was the right thing for me to do. And when you went public, you know, obviously one of the things about going public is, you know, you create new wealth opportunities for people that were with you in the early days. So what happened with your um, employee force at that moment? Well, we had taken 24% of the company into the ownership of the staff at no cost to anyone but me. And that was a, a major thing that also took me a, a decade or so. And we got to up to 62% staff control with a, a, a complex system of, of voting after we floated and the professional managers made it really financially very successful. 70 of the staff became millionaires in their own right. And I'm enormously proud of that. I know some of them have done very interesting things with it. Some have frittered it away, but in, in the main, uh, they've got involved with uh, other businesses, uh, with charities, and have become conscious of the uh, responsibility and burdens of, of, of money. And are you able to talk like specifically about numbers? What value creation was hit at the point of of going public? You know, did you create any like new fresh millionaires out of the employee pool? Um, I can't remember the figures. I'm afraid it's a long time ago now. Uh, but yes, <laughs> there were quite a few uh, millionaires as we actually floated. Um, we had um, stock options um, for quite a long period of time. I don't know about your own business, Dan, but towards the end, there were there were some masses of people dealing with the the corporate side, dealing with the pre preparation of the quarterly results. That I wasn't so involved. Well, I wasn't involved at all in some of it. I certainly wasn't interested because I just had a different role to play as a role model, a leader of the organisation, but I was not managing it on a day-to-day -day basis. Got it. Okay. So how long has it been since you uh, left the business effectively? I retired at 60 and I'm now 88. So that's quite a long time. Before we get on to, you know, what you've been filling your time with over that period, just coming back to then some of the important moments and milestones in your journey of building up a public company and creating a lot of different millionaires from your employee base who, uh, you know, also it's worth mentioning, and I think you've glossed over this fact, you know, um, almost all women, the most important questions really are, you know, what are your views on how um, sexism and your role as a leader in that fight for equality over the period you were working, you know, how has that sort of evolved and shaped and where do you think we are today on that journey as well? I really deplore some, I can't believe how today we're still talking about the same sort of things that I was talking about 50 years ago. Women feeling undervalued, women being ideas taken and presented as by man as their own, um, women feeling being talked over, women being patronised, uh, women being sexually assaulted. I mean, I can remember selling a, or trying to sell, I think I did sell it actually, a six-figure software project to a junior minister, and he was trying to pinch my bottom. Now, it's very hard to maintain the sort of professionalism of that. Now, I don't think that happens so much today, 
Uh, but the equivalent, um, there are still things I come across that are grossly sexist. It's even worse, of course, for black, Asian or Latina women. And these are the things that are, the, you know, the biggest thing, perhaps, uh, in the diversity issue. We have to use people. When you think of performance, you know, there's tools and there's motivation and there's time and money. But the biggest thing is motivation. And women are very much motivated to work as teams, to work for quality. I, I found working in the early days, that were early days, the first 25 years or so, such a lovely atmosphere of, uh, it was like a family business. It was a family business, obviously. Later on, that femaleness slowly went away, but what remained was this cooperation, that collegiate atmosphere, that people have still worked together, that we still did trust each other, that we still liked each other. And so the, the culture lasted much more than the initial gender balance. And just in terms of the crusade, as you say, you know, sort of that you went through, how come this name of Steve stuck then? Well, I think any entrepreneur has to somehow differentiate themselves. Um, they have to build up their personality uh, in order to lead something which doesn't exist without them. I found myself writing um, sales promotion letters by the dozen, and they were letters in those days, not email, to no effect. I mean, people were just not replying to my letters. And uh, so my dear husband suggested that uh, I use the family nickname of Steve and uh, the same letters to the same sort of prospects, uh, which I got from the newspaper, meant that I was began to get some responses by signing Steve Shirley. People remembered me, of course, as the woman's company, and that was a danger that um, I was remembered for what we were rather than for what we could do. Uh, so it, it, it's not all honey, but I am remembered for that. It was a sort of marketing. Uh, it was innovative. It was disruptive. And I noticed that today there are many women, senior and junior, who use androgynous names. Joe, J.K. Rowling, for example, published under, did not publish under her Joanne name. Uh, and then she also used a, a male pseudonym later on. There is still this feeling that women have to break through, we have to be that much better in order to be accepted. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And did you get your uh, your colleagues to all call you Steve in that case as well? Oh, yes. The culture was such that when I started in 1962, people were very formal. I was called Mrs Shirley and um, it would be Miss Brooke and uh, Mr Jones. And it was really only when we began to feel confident that we knew that we were all contributing, that people quite naturally dropped into the Steve mode. And yes, I've been Steve ever since, and I like it. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so what was it like, personally, then, being one of the very few women at the time, essentially running a business, and also, you know, just uh, raising a family as well, you know, being um, a leader at home as well as in your professional life? What was all, all that like? Well, it was pretty debilitating. 
it was very stressful. Our son, who has since died, was profoundly autistic and very difficult, very difficult indeed. And people have asked, how did you, how did you manage to do those two, running a business and, 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 and rearing a, such a difficult child? And in an odd sort of way, Dan, they, they sort of balanced each other. The only time that I forgot my son uh, was when I was working. I am a workaholic. I enjoy work. I love what I do. But the only time that I forgot him, well, the only time I forgot him was when I was working. The only time I forget work was when I was with him. And since he died, I've really noticed that I don't switch off in the same sort of way. So for many years, they balanced. Um, eventually, the stress did get to me, and I had a good old-fashioned nervous breakdown. I was off work for a year. And that, in fact, helped with the succession, because I realised when I came back, I, I had to do things differently. The stress of building up a company is enormous. I think only other entrepreneurs know that. I find that there's some jealousy about success, particularly from a woman. And if only people knew what that success had cost, your social life does go. Um, a lot of marriages break down. We've managed to stick together somehow. We've been married for 62 years, which I think is a, a you know, matter for applause. Um, <laughs> it does seem a long time. But the stress is, it's not just the responsibility, it's the day-to-day unremitting pressures and um, it all got on top of me and I know now much more to be certainly selfish to a certain extent to say no to things to say no I'm, I, I, I'm not interested in that and, and that's a big big step forward. You know, we talk a lot now um, in 2020, 2021 about burnout, about mental health, about balance, about making sure that you find some way of not taking so much from yourself that you've got nothing left to give. Assuming that wasn't at all ever a narrative whilst you were growing your business, do you feel like, you know, looking back on it, you kind of got lost in it all and that actually um, you could have stayed the journey longer if you'd have found better balance? Oh, I, that that's for sure. I don't really regret it at all. It seems to me that I have done what was in me to do. I feel fulfilled. Uh, nowadays, I'm a very happy person, and I certainly wasn't earlier in my life. Uh, but nowadays, I really am happy, not because of the success, but because I, I feel fulfilled. I've got a purpose. I work now in charities. So I still have that purpose. Most women my age don't have... You know, the, the purpose of the day is to go and have lunch, whereas for me, I, I have, there's something to get up for each morning. Yeah, I think that's so important. Do you feel like the something to get up for each morning has changed multiple times throughout your career? And actually, you know, you say you weren't necessarily happy in the early days because you didn't have as much purpose. Are you talking about early days before starting your business? Because obviously your business had such a purpose. Did you ever feel that way whilst running it? I think there was a lot of problems still from my refugee start. And that, of course, not everybody has those sorts of difficulties. I mean, I had six years of analysis of the renowned Tavistock Clinic in London um, to get me over the survivor guilt. Somehow, you'd think you'd be very happy to have survived when a million children died at that time, and I survived. But that, you'd get left with a survivor guilt and the need to 
justify why I was saved when others weren't. And that gives a tremendous load uh, on an individual. It doesn't go away with time. I still feel that I want to make each day worth living. I still don't fritter my time away. I like to do new things. I get my certainly lots and lots of pleasure out of that. Um, but I do like to feel that I'm earning my keep in the world. Just talking through like the different sort of challenges and moments you've had in your career then, what would you say was the most challenging time professionally for you? And how did you think about who was in your support network at the time? Were you able to talk to colleagues about this? Share sort of the reality of what a really tough time looks like. I had a brilliant idea which came by chance. And that was I approached the local management centre and said, I've got this unusual business. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. Can we trade your access to understanding what a service business is now? Because all the books were about um, uh, manufacturing uh, service business for access to one of your academics. And that was marvelous. Um, he, he really taught me how to sell. Uh, he taught me a lot of things because you need somebody that you could... My husband was very good, but he didn't understand what I was talking about, really. So he would just be a, a positive listener. The act of creation is a solitary one. Building a business, I know some people set up in twos and threes, um, but I think it's a solitary. There's one person that makes it happen. And it's a terrific thing. The opportunity to be the first. First doesn't have to be only, but to be the first, to make something happen, to know I, I did that. I moved in, in, was selling software before anyone else was. People laughed. Uh, you can't sell software, it's free. And um, certainly not by a woman. So I, I really had a, a lot of time and pleasure and pride in opening the door uh, for those that follow me. So, I mean, that's obviously some of the positive stuff, but then just, you know, one of the things that we always get listeners say, you know, is really helpful for them. As you'll understand, entrepreneurs go through these big waves of ups and downs. And sometimes when people are listening to this podcast and listening to you right now, they might be on a high right now when everything's going well, but they might also be on a low and hearing other leaders express the moments that were low and sort of how they went through that and how they came out the other side. If you could share an example of a time that, you know, you really struggled at work um, and how you got through it, that would be fantastic. I think it is a matter of sharing. When I had a couple of colleagues, or maybe even three or four, with whom I could really talk honestly, it was much, much easier for me and for everybody because they were informed. If I got the wrong person and told them about the worries, then that upset them and then that unsettled them and then they didn't didn't work well or might even leave. So it, it was a very careful balance. The solutions, I'm quite sure, are always through people. Uh, they are not from books or money. The solutions are getting the right people. I recruit always on values rather than meeting a job spec uh, because people can grow into jobs. They, my first PA finished up running the, one of those subsidiaries. I mean, you know, people have, have enormously potential within them. And if you can call on that, it doesn't become quite so lonely. Leadership is lonely. Um, I think you have to accept that. There aren't any easy solutions. 
the academic world can provide uh, guidance. I read a great deal of business articles, or I did, good quality stuff, Harvard Business Review, um, stuff like that, to really make sure that I was as competent as was in me to be. Uh, I'm not an academic. I, uh, I love to learn, um, but I do like to be feel that I'm on top of the job. And um, it's colleagues who will help. So um, moving forward, I guess, to the uh, more recent period of your life and how have you spent your time? So you've had all this amazing experience in building a business. Um, before we get into, I guess, you know, the, the next stage, what was it like leaving the business that you started? Like, what were the emotions surrounding that, that moment? Well, I was, I was quite um, sad about it until we had a, a sort of final celebration. Um, they gave a great big party and so on. And, and they brought in all sorts of clients and stuff like that. And it was a lovely send off. Um, and, and after that, I began to feel a bit better. But the world was very empty. I hadn't got something to get up for each morning. And so I took myself off to Australia for um, a three week holiday, which was unusual for me. And that gave a sort of break point. So when I came back, it was quite different. I then found really that the burden of the financial success really had to be dealt with. So I moved fairly naturally into what I call venture philanthropy, where I see problems that I can solve with money or effort or introductions or something. Um, and that's by focusing on, I, I mean, I, I sort of run them like businesses. And again, the first charity took me 17 years to get into professional management. Uh, so that's a long time because I hadn't got any money at that time. I was scratching my way. It wasn't like another sort of business. Second charity took me five years. Third charity took me two years. So I am a learning person, but always it's using the strength of, of my financial success to do something that is really focused on things that I know and care about. And that is information technology. I was the initial funder for the Oxford Internet Institute, uh, the IT livery company and so on but also autism, which was my late son's condition. And it's autism really that takes most of my time these days. Lots of people support information technology. It's clearly something worth doing. Autism is difficult. So going into the, the, the theme of philanthropy then, how do you become a good philanthropist? Because this is one of the really interesting challenges and in that lots of people have very differing points of view, don't they? And do you pick a big problem and try and solve it? Or do you pick one that's closer to your heart and more niche like autism that will affect less people, but the actual money that you put into it is more likely to have an impact, obviously, because one of the things they struggle with is funding. So I'd love to hear how you've come to these decisions in your life. Well, I'm very selfish, really. I, I, I focus on things that I know and care about. Whenever I deviate from that, and of course you do things and you think afterwards, you, you don't get any pleasure from it. Philanthropy really needs to be a, a reciprocal relationship. It's balanced. Nobody finishes up in the red. I get so much pleasure from what I do uh, that it is, it's not only like, not like work, but I mean, it's not like a gift. It's, it's just a, it's how, how I live. I start small, 
or I started small. I started unfocused and learned to focus, as I did in business, I suppose. Uh, I tried to put all my business skills in and concentrate on things where I know the sector, I have the personal credibility within that sector to make something happen. My largest philanthropic involvement is 30 million. You know, so I, I, I give big. I don't give small anymore because it seems to be lots of other people are doing that. People are enormously generous. Uh, you know, whenever there's a disaster in Afghanistan now, the money is pouring in five pounds, 10 pounds and so on. And most of my good projects, and, and we've done some value assessment of them, but most of them have been the larger ones. After 10 years, we did a self-assessment of how we were doing, but in terms of impact, that came out clearly that the larger ones, pro rata, uh, were more valuable, more satisfactory. Since then, we've, we, we use third-party uh, assessment of, of impact. And um, I'm pleased to say that, you know, it's getting, because we're business-like about it, we're not playing with it. We're running them as a business. We're setting them up properly. We're getting the right trustees in. We're waiting to time things properly. And a lot of business is about timing. Um, I, I'm usually slightly too early, uh, but I hang in there and then the time gets right. A lot of people go in too late and it's already a mature market. When I went to the States, um, I tried to break in there and completely failed. It was a mature market. I was must have been an idiot to think I could try. But I tried. At the time, I thought I could carve out a little bit for myself. Yeah, I think that's you know really important. Have you learned any lessons then in terms of balance and your experience with finding yourself in these moments of exhaustion and obviously acute stress where you had to take a year off. Have you learned some good lessons on on how to balance your time and making sure that you've got enough time for yourself? I'm not as bad as I was. Uh, I do now swim several times a week. I concentrate on keeping myself fit. You know, it's a good practical stuff, uh, which means I need to eat sensibly. Uh, I need to sleep properly. And I, my, my husband now has dementia, so that's not necessarily easy. I do look after myself and it's largely the swimming, I think, that keeps me going. I swim about a quarter of a mile, two or three times a week. And it used to be half a mile, can't do that anymore. You say it's the swimming and I'm sure that's a massive part of it. But I would also argue that, you know, the sense of getting up every single day with a purpose and still be working is a huge part of it as well, right? Excuse me. Suits me. That's what I am. <laughs> it does suit you. And I guess on that basis, you know, what would be some words of wisdom that you can share with listeners? All the important things that I've done have been either disruptive or long-term. Disruptive in setting up new things, but sticking with them. 11 years for this, 17 years for that five years for these you know are not things that are done overnight with a burst of energy fantastic steve thank you so much for all your time today where can people find your your book or follow you if they want to the books are available from uh, my website i have a second book out uh, which is a, a book about my um uh, speeches about 30 of my speeches from the last 40 years. This is my lockdown project. What do I do, somebody like me, during the lockdown? So I, I wrote a second book. Uh, it's a beautiful book. Uh, it's sold on behalf of uh, the Autistica charity, uh, which does medical research. 
Uh, and I'm enormously proud of it. And I hope you'll all get a copy. And what's it called? So to speak. My memoir is called Let It Go. Let It Go, meaning let it go for the, the rank of the past. Let the money go. Let it go. Be relaxed about things. Take your time. Fantastic. It's been such a pleasure, Steve. Thank you so much for your time. Dan, it's been really interesting. Thank you very much indeed. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. After we had secured most of those funds and hired on new team members, we get an email about a month later. And the email says, after some consideration and this conversation has gone up through the administration, we've decided that we're going to revoke and rescind your award on the basis that we believe that your product and company are obscene, profane and immoral. That was Laura DiCarlo, the founder and CEO of her sex tech startup, which caused a stir when it got banned, having won an award at the world famous CES Consumer Electronics Show in 2019. Find out what the future of pleasure will be like next week on Secret Leaders. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.